This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We have brought in some of the strongest sanctions in the world against the Iranian regime. The top 50% of the leadership of the Iranian regime is now permanently banned from ever being able to come to Canada and have a safe haven here. Now, let's talk about economic sanctions this morning, shall we? So there's Prime Minister Trudeau talking about Iranian sanctions. Well, this week we also heard that both Canada and the United States imposed new sanctions on individuals and entities to mark the one year that has gone by since Russia invaded Ukraine. And we've already sanctioned more than 2,400 people and entities. That's in the Russian situation. With the Iranian sanctions, hundreds of people and entities have been sanctioned by Canada. So it all begs the question, doesn't it? Do sanctions work? They can be an important tool in response to worldwide issues, but can they be improved to have more impact? Well, joining us now is Jeffrey Schott, who's a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the co-author of Economic Sanctions Reconsidered. Jeffrey, thank you for being here. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Do economic sanctions work? Well, that's the question I'm asked thousands of times, and the the, the answer is they make uh, it more costly and cumbersome to do business with the targeted regime, whether it's Russia or Iran or, or another country. Uh, but alone, they can't uh, uh, solve the problems that you have and, and cause a country to back down and, uh, and change its policy. Okay, so then uh, why do we keep doing do, them? We do them because it, it, it makes the target regime less able to meet its goals. Uh, more vulnerable to military or, dipl- uh, or action, more vulnerable to dis- uh, uh, to discord among its own people, and uh, therefore less likely to sustain its uh, aggressive actions. Okay, so those would seem like a good end, right? Like that's what we would want sanctions to do. So where is the disconnect then, Jeffrey? Do we, as the general public, expect too much when we hear about economic sanctions? Uh, I think the sanctions are oversold by officials, uh, and they uh, often uh, people are are too impatient, uh, and they say we want this to work now. Uh, and rather, sanctions have a corrosive effect. They're they're not a uh, a silver bullet that will will solve your problem, but they will erode the the ability of the target regime over time. And often people don't want to pay, uh, wait that long because the uh, cost of the sanctions hits the target regime, but it also can affect uh, the people in the countries applying the sanctions, as people in Europe know, from the high cost of energy that has resulted from right. the war. Can you think of an example where sanctions have worked, even if it did take more time, where they were effective? Well, there are a number of uh, examples in history where they worked perhaps prominently with the apartheid regime in South Africa, 
when sanctions were applied uh, for a number of years and finally led the South African regime to basically dis- dismantle apartheid. But it took a while. It took uh, many, many years and a lot of suffering. Uh, but the end result uh, was certainly worthwhile. Okay, so is that the result, do you think, that governments still have in mind when they think about imposing sanctions? Uh, I think there's still a, a disconnect. Uh, they want to impose sanctions because they don't want to use the full military force, and they know that diplomacy isn't enough. Uh, but this amb- ambiguous uh, 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 nature of, of, of policymakers not wanting to pay too much, not wanting to fight too hard uh, and risk a bigger military conflict makes makes the uh, impact of the sanctions less uh, forceful than they otherwise would be, less potent. Right. So in your work, then, is there a way that you have seen, is there a way of improving sanctions? Like, can we do this better? Well, uh, officials learn by doing And so over the years, uh, there has been uh, efforts to try to fine tune how you apply the sanctions. More effort has been made on blocking financial transactions. And therefore, you see the the really most important sanctions against Russia have hit the financial system and made it much more difficult for Russia to import goods uh, that it needs to uh, maintain its economy and its military doesn't block them from doing it, but it makes it harder to find the goods that they need. They get lower quality goods and they pay a higher price for it. So that in turn erodes their economic viability. So it sounds like then it's kind of a waiting game, Jeffrey. It is a waiting game. And remember, Putin uh, has been playing this game for nine years uh, since he invaded Crimea back in 2014. That was nine years ago, and uh, he's, pl- he's in it for the long haul, and he doesn't have much of a, a choice because if he doesn't win, uh, it's not very good for him. So uh, I think uh, Western countries have to realize that this is something they have to plan, not just for this year and next year, but uh, how to deal with Russia going forward, how to deal even when hostilities end for a incomplete peace that is likely to emerge. So countries that impose sanctions like the United States, like Canada, are we good at enforcing them too? Because it's one thing to just announce something. We have to follow up, right? Exactly. And that's critical. And uh, that's where the financial sanctions come in, because the enforcement is actually being done by the private banks uh, who risk massive fines if they don't, uh, if any of their uh, customers or clients uh, uh, basically violate the sanctions. And so we see the cost of enforcement, not just in government agencies, but being introduced in, in the private sector with huge compliance uh, offices uh, and staffs being uh, uh, introduced over the years, costly to the banks, costly to the consumers, but meant to try to enforce the, uh, the sanctions. Not, not airtight, uh, but uh, they do block a lot because banks don't want to risk a billion-dollar fine. Right. And so have we done that before? Have fines been levied in, in cases that are necessary? Uh, yes. And uh, there have been multi-billion-dollar fines imposed against uh, some banks, one in France. Uh, companies have been hit. Uh, Huawei, the uh, Chinese uh, 
uh, chip maker has been uh, hit with sanctions for violating Iran sanctions. Uh, and that was before we started blocking all sorts of flows of technology to Huawei. So there has been enforcement, but it's uh, a bit of a whack-a-mole exercise because if there's an economic incentive to evade the sanctions, somebody is going to take that risk. And uh, so what you try to do is make sure that you get all the big guys in, the, in, the, uh, in commerce uh, to comply, knowing that there will be some small uh, evasions. And even the tightest sanctions, we had tight sanctions against Saddam Hussein, even Saddam Hussein's uh, facing the tightest world sanctions still was able to smuggle in billions of dollars of goods each year. Uh, so if there's an incentive, people will take yeah. the risk and try to get around it, but uh, it will be harder. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeffrey, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Jeffrey Schott, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the co-author of Economic Sanctions Reconsidered. I mean, this week we heard a lot about sanctions, more of them being applied to Russia from Canada and the United States. Uh, We still have many sanctions applied to the Iranian regime as well. And the question is, do they actually work? Well, it sounds like they do. They just take more time. And how much more time is it going to take? Because some of these are pretty widespread, right? Mom deserves the best. And there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candy. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about soccer because it's been a, a tough few weeks for Canada soccer. The Canadian women's team has received a lot of support from Canadians and other national teams in their labor fight with that organization. But it's also been a lot of high profile, let's say, airing of issues within that organization. And now the president of Canada soccer, Nick Bontis, has resigned, saying he knows that change is needed to get that labor peace with the men's and women's team in Canada. Now, to talk more about this, Alexander Gangway-Ruzik joins us now, digital content creator at One Soccer and co-host of the Northern Football Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate having on. Were you surprised to hear about this resignation, or did it feel kind of inevitable? Certainly, it felt like one that it, it was coming. I mean, I guess maybe the timing of it, uh, a bit of a surprise. You know, of course, uh, Nick Bontis, as president of Canada Soccer, was also due uh, in front of the Heritage Committee in a few weeks' time. So, you know, some wondering uh, if that would be something... Uh, that, that was on his, his schedule, but given that both men's and women's team have gone on a strike over the last year of, of his presidency, despite you know success, it's one where his position as president certainly was under a lot of pressure from a lot of sides. What do you think went wrong here? I mean, everybody talks about how successful soccer is right now in Canada, and yet all we hear about are fiscal and financial pressures. Yeah, I mean, it's one where you know, in spite of, of what's going on. I mean, the both teams have been very successful, yes, but there have been a lot of cracks in the foundation. And, you know, unfortunately for those who have been following the sport for a long time in this country, a lot of those foundational cracks have, you know, always been there. It's been a question of how, you know, can, can soccer be successful in this country, especially at the national team level. And there's just been a reality that 
a lot of you know there's been a lot of organizational uh, troubles for for decades now Canada soccer went through something similar back in the 2000s just of course you know with the teams not doing as well at the time it's maybe something that slipped through the cracks but you know especially now with the teams doing well it showed that while things were going great on the field a lot of those same issues persisted off the field and you know just with more eye- eyeballs on it more pressure bigger stages those, those you know cracks really start to show do you think, Alexander, in this last couple of weeks here, there was a lot of pressure on Canada soccer because people were going, yeah, wait a minute, like, what is going on here? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the biggest thing is this, you know, women's national team in particular, uh, with, you know, what they were going through, the budget cuts, especially they have a huge chance this year heading to a World Cup in Australia, arguably their best chance to ever win a World Cup, considering they had in as defending Olympic champions have a great roster for them to then come out and say, look, they're not able to, to prepare as best as they want to be. They have, you know, budget cuts uh, in, in a World Cup year, especially after, you know, the men's team were, were able to go to their first World Cup in such a long time and, and have, you know, all that support behind them to do that. It's one where you look at that and, you know, that's, that's a huge worry. And then you look at across the board budget cuts for both teams despite successful years. That's one where you do wonder, okay, the sport is more popular than ever. The national teams have more interest than ever. How that popularity is leading to budget cuts, not budget raises. So do you think this is a sign of progress? Like, does this look like change at Canada soccer? Or you mentioned that there was supposed to be some testimony upcoming. Is this more of a delay, do you think, in finding some answers? It's one of those where, you know, it's a first move and it's kind of going to be interesting to see where things go from here. I mean, it's one where, the next hire, if we're talking president, it's going to be huge just because whoever comes in is going to have a huge job to to talk to the women's and men's national team. We're still working out, you know, a deal on top of, of course, all the budget cuts, but working out a deal uh, for, for future, you know, uh, World Cup allocation, you know, money, et cetera, and, and ensuring equal pay, pay deal potentially similar to the one that was struck, uh, you know, in the United States. Uh, you know, so that, that's something that has to, the, to that's going to need to be worked out, um, and uh, amongst other issues. You know, so it's one where I think is you know first domino to drop, and then you add in the the heritage committee, one where they're going, you know, Canada Soccer is going to go have to answer to to the government about the financial situation and some of the the numbers that maybe haven't been clear or transparent on, on all parties, especially that's something the national teams have demanded. Uh, so, yeah, still some big jobs uh, to, to come, especially for, for who replaces it. And I think it's one where, you know, Nick Bontis also might still have to answer for the committee. So that's something that won't go away from his perspective. Well, that'd be good. I think we still need some answers. Uh, Alexander, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate that. Alexander Gangway rizik who's a digital content creator at One Soccer. Uh, hopefully there will still be some answers coming, but it does tell you the power of the Canadian women's national team because they were upset. I think Canadians across the country said, hey, something is not right here. And now what we see is that the head of Canada Soccer has stepped down, uh, feeling that there won't be change uh, with him there. So he stepped down. But get this, though. Thing about soccer, this is the way it goes. He is uh, on his way to Guatemala, apparently, where he has been named CONCACAF's Council Vice President of North America. So he has a continuing role in soccer. And as Alexander pointed out, still so many questions about what Canada Soccer is doing with all of their money, right? This is Mornings with Simi. The other big story that's going on today that you're going to be hearing a lot about 
is the fact that it's budget day here in BC. That means that you'll hear about the government's priorities for the year ahead. Now, leading up to today, we do have an idea of what some of what we might hear, along with hearing from groups who say they believe they know where the money should go to. Now, Premier David Eby has indicated there will be big investments in health care and housing, but what else do we need to put money into? Well, Alex Hemingway is a senior economist and public finance uh, policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and joins us now. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. So there's clearly some money to spend this year. Alex, where do you think it should go? Yeah, you know, uh, the ones you mentioned, of course, are very important. Housing uh, is one that requires some, some major new investment to get that that crisis under control. And, you know, that that has been signaled as a priority. And I'm, I'm optimistic we're going to see that particularly uh, spent out of the big surplus that we have uh, right now. But I hope we'll see that on a more sustained basis as well. In terms of other areas, you know, one to keep an eye on is child care. We know we've seen big dollars going into child care over the past couple of years jointly funded by the federal and provincial government, big fee cuts and, and an expansion of $10 a day spaces. Uh, but one thing that's really needed right now, and, and any parent looking for childcare knows it, you know, there's a huge shortage of spaces. So we need to be opening more childcare spaces and we need a workforce plan to uh, uh, bring those early childhood educators in uh, to be able to do that job paying more decent wages in that sector. It's a, it's a highly gendered sector, and so it's a pay equity issue as well. Another one I'll be watching for is, is the question of poverty. You know, we know with the, all the discussion of the cost of living rising in this province, uh, you know, if you're on social assistance or disability, the rates for those are just incredibly low. You know, there have been some small bumps in that over the past few years, but it's far below the poverty line for both the welfare and disability rate. And that's that's really uh, just not right. Uh, and, you know, we're a prosperous province uh, and we shouldn't be uh, imposing uh, that kind of situation on people. And what did you think also of what the finance minister has had to say this week? That's Katrina Conroy suggesting that, you know what, this might be the last great year in terms of, you know, budget surpluses to spend. And then we're talking deficits after that. Yeah, the, the signals have been interesting on that. So, you know, there is the signal where we're likely headed into deficit over the next couple of years. That that makes sense given, uh, you know, the economic slowdown that we're facing. Deficit can be a bit of a scare word, but it's actually it's entirely appropriate given uh, that we may be ha- uh, heading into an economic slowdown. And running moderate deficits in the short term is far preferable to shortchanging uh, investments in critical public services and infrastructure, in my view. And that's something we've been doing in this province for too long uh, under multiple governments, frankly. And that comes at a social and an economic cost. You know, lack of affordable housing causes headaches for, for businesses as well as families in terms of worker recruitment, uh, not having enough childcare spaces reduces our labor force participation. So that costs us all in the long run. So we really do need to shore up those investments that have been at too low a level for too long. And, you know, an eventual uh, return to budget balance should come from uh, increased revenue, uh, you know, whether that's economic recovery or, or taxes that focus on those at the very top, not by neglecting public investment. Do you think the public's attitude has changed on that? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at some of my own research has looked at uh, policy options with respect to taxing the, the wealthy, that's an extremely 
popular position in the polling as well as it turns out you know it's backed by economic evidence but it's a popular position and you know if you look at uh, what institutions like even the credit rating agencies which are relatively conservative institutions will tell you uh, and you know i'm just looking at one of their reports here in in front of me bc is a low tax jurisdiction Uh, it has the flexibility to raise additional revenue while remaining competitive with other jurisdictions so i think people can see the crises unfolding around us uh, whether that's housing healthcare, climate the toxic drug issues and you know in part a big part of addressing those issues is investing together collectively through our institutions of government Uh, when you look at bc's provincial government spending as a share of our total economic output as a share of GDP, that's actually declined substantially from where it stood 25 years ago. So we do have the economic capacity to tackle these issues. We're an extremely profit, prosperous uh, province, but we haven't we haven't harnessed that uh, appropriately. And, and you know, there's nothing in, inevitable about that. Those all result from policy choices in, in budgets and, and many other mm-hmm. places. And you know, we can make different choices. Well, we'll see what happens today. I'd be interested to hear your reaction when it all happens, Alex. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks, Cindy. That's Alex Hemingway, Senior Economist and Public Finance Policy Analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Today's Budget Day here in BC. Groups like Alex's will be watching closely to see what happens. There'll be lots of reaction to that. We'll have complete coverage. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to hear a lot about the provincial budget. Now, to talk more about what's expected, what they would like to see, Kevin Falcon joins us now, leader of the opposition for the BC Liberals. Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thanks very much for having me, Simi. Let me ask you first, what's the weather like where you are? Well, I, you know, I was out at 6.30 in the morning uh, heading through the downtown to the airport because my helijet flight was cancelled and it was snowing like crazy. So it's... Uh, it's very slow. Okay, good to know. Good to know. All right, let's talk about what's going on then in Victoria today. We've got the budget coming down. What What do you hope to hear? Well, I think what we'll hear is the same thing we've been hearing, which is a lot more announcements, a lot more spending. Uh, but what concerns me, and I think British Columbians really need to think about this, is it's not about how much we're spending. It's about what results we're getting. And whether it's housing, where we've got the most unaffordable housing in North America, or the highest rents in Canada, or whether it has to do with healthcare, where we've got, you know, one in five that cannot access a family physician. We saw on the front page of the Vancouver Sun today, we've got some of the worst cancer wait times in the country, Uh, whether it's in public safety, where our streets, frankly, are far less safe after two terms of NDP government than they were before. And I just think that we're going to really focus on outcomes. The outcomes are bad, and I want to see what they're going to do differently so we get different outcomes. So what do you think we need to make sure that happens? Like, how do you put in measurements to make sure we get those outcomes? Well, that's and that's part of the problem with this government is that they either won't release any of the data that allows us to see uh, just, you know, how bad things are getting uh, because they don't like the results and the numbers that they see. And what we would do is be very transparent about it. Uh, the Canadian Association of Journalists called this government the most secretive in Canada uh, because they refuse to release information. They try to muzzle doctors. Uh, they try to muzzle nurses so that nobody can talk about just how serious the challenges and problems are out there. And uh, one of the things we would change right away is, first of all, stop muzzling our frontline health workers. Make sure that the public knows just how dire the situation is. And then demonstrate how we're going to make some substantive changes, uh, embracing innovation, not just doing more of the same old thing, throwing more money in the same process, 
to only continue to see worse results. We have to have the courage to, to change, and we'll do that. The Premier has said that we have uh, infrastructure deficits in a number of areas. Do you agree with that? Well, yes, of course we do. But the problem is, look at their infrastructure projects. They've got, because they are required doing these, what I call community ripoff agreements that say that 85% of construction workers can't work on these, these uh, uh, publicly um, financed projects because they're calling them community benefit agreements, which means that you have to belong to certain unions to be allowed to bid. And what that, what that has meant is much higher prices than necessary. So the hospital in Cowichan, for example, has gone from $600 million to $1.4 billion and counting. They've got the you know, collections uh, part of the Royal BC Museum that was supposed to be $170 million is now over $300 million and counting. We've got the Patalo Bridge, a four-lane bridge being replaced by this NDP government that is being replaced with a four-lane bridge. Imagine that. 80 years later, they're building the same number of lanes and it's years behind schedule and, and hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. So I would argue that what we have to do is get smarter about how we build infrastructure uh, like we did when I was there and built the Canada Line on schedule on budget, the Sea to Sky Highway, Portman Bridge, Pitt River Bridge, etc. And I'm just I'm afraid that they just don't honestly know what they're doing. Where would you focus the spending then? Well, I would focus it on mental health and addictions. I, I think that that's where we have to do a big shift in direction because right now government is completely focused on publicly supplied addictive drugs and decriminalizing hard drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, etc. And without proper guardrails, that is not going to end well. We've already seen the streets spiraling out of control. What I would do is focus on treatment and recovery. I would make it free because I don't want cost to be a barrier to people getting healthy. And I would entirely focus on trying to help people get healthy and get better. I think that's what government ought to be doing. Okay, so today then, what will you be looking for in particular? Well, I'll be, you know, looking to see, you know, what new spending plans they have. Uh, you know, the, the good news is they have picked up on our mental health and addiction plan. And two weeks prior to the budget, they, they apparently uh, just plowed a billion dollars through Treasury Board and stuffed it into the budget. I've never seen that happen. I've been a finance minister. Uh, and I, it makes me a bit nervous, to be honest with you, because I'm concerned about the fact that they're more focused on announcements as opposed to rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work of governing. In other words, laying down, okay, how are we going to spend these dollars? How are we going to measure results? Who are we going to hold accountable? All the kind of things that folks listening in your audience right now going to work or what have you um, are held accountable for every day. Uh, Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Kevin Falcon, leader of the opposition for the BC Liberals, talking about what he hopes to hear and what he does not want to hear today with the uh, budget coming down in Victoria. And of course, we'll have complete coverage of that for you. Uh, We'll start to get the details of that early this afternoon, probably about one o'clock or so is when they'll start to filter out. So keep it tuned in right here. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk about um, TikTok. Because this morning, the B.C. government is agreeing with the feds. The Minister of Citizen Services, Lisa Beer, says due to recent concerns regarding TikTok, 
The B.C. government is also temporarily banning the use of the app on government-issued mobile devices as they, quote, continue to examine the risks associated with the app. Now, that follows the announcement from the Trudeau government yesterday that it was going to be banning the app on government-issued devices. So what does this tell us about what is going on? Joining us now is Vas Bednar, who's the Executive Director of the Master of Public Policy and Digital Society at McMaster University. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What do you think this tells us about what is kind of going on behind the scenes and the concerns regarding this app? It definitely doesn't tell us enough about the concerns, right? We're, we're hearing that there are new concerns, but we're not getting enough from the government in terms of what those are. Prime Minister Trudeau has said he's a, a fan of giving Canadians more information. And our chief information officer federally has, has now determined there's an unacceptable level of risk. But is this risk net new or has it always been there? Um, that's, uh, that's what's uncertain. So it starts to feel like a little bit of a, a knee-jerk, sudden reaction to a vague uh, concern. That makes it hard for everyday people, I think, to, to reevaluate their relationship with the app if they, if they have a relationship at all. Is it, does that mean that it's also very tricky for politicians too, isn't it? Because some of them have quite a presence on TikTok. Right. And I mean, it's important for government officials of all kinds to meet audiences where they are. TikTok is uh, a vehicle to connect with mostly younger people and share information. So we're saying that government officials can't use the app, but we're not being explicit about are we going to stop paid advertising on the app from the government? Are we going to not put any official government communications on the app? Right. These are different different dimensions that would help us understand more about the government's changing relationship uh, with the platform instead of uh, simply following in the footsteps of the U.S. and the EU, which have introduced similar bans. Okay, and what are the concerns here, do you think, that is that is fueling this? I think the concerns are related to the platform being you know, owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance, and that we're having more of a geopolitical moment with China, where you know there've been allegations through a CSIS link that are uh, that might, there might have been electoral interference in, in 2019 and 2021. Deputy Prime Minister Christine Freeland, you know, recently sanctioned uh, a bank uh, that was uh, owned by Chinese investors, and the Prime Minister is resisting calls for a public inquiry into that potential election interference. So does this make it seem like we are taking a a stance or or intervening more with something China-related because of the geopolitical uh, signal it sends? I think that's important part of the moment to acknowledge. Right. So do you feel like if there needs to be more public discussion about this, because if there's a concern for politicians, then wouldn't there be a concern for the public? Yes, but it could be it could be you know a little bit different if if there's some kind of concern that people can access other information on the phone or location of government officials or or documents. Again, our, it stretches the imagination because we're just not having I think a frank conversation about what these new risks are, um, and we're being very vague and not giving Canadians the new information that they deserve. We also don't even know how many government officials even have the app or use it on government devices, right? The number could be zero. So one wonders what this ban is really uh, going to accomplish and whether there will be further steps that we'll see the government take either 
through the ongoing privacy investigation uh, of of TikTok or being more explicit about advertising dollars there. Right, because has there not been a lot of concern about this app for a few years now? Yes, and uh, that's healthy, right? It's good to ask questions about privacy and security for all sorts of apps uh, that we use. TikTok came to Canada in about 2019 and had this astronomical growth in the pandemic when we were you know, stuck at home more often uh, with our phones. Um, that would have been a great time for the government to proactively investigate and, and sort of share their findings. There was a 2021 report from a shop called the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto that looked at security and privacy concerns with TikTok and found that they weren't, you know, outlandish, that they were in line with uh, other, other popular apps. So again, if there's new information right now, I think Canadians deserve to understand the changing nature of this potential threat from one app. Otherwise, I worry that this is a little bit of a theatrical move that doesn't really accomplish too much. Mm, interesting. Vass, thank you for your time on that. Thanks for having me. That's Vass Bednar, who's the Executive Director of the Masters of Public Policy Program and Digital Society at McMaster University, talking about governments moving now to say, listen, we don't want TikTok on government-issued mobile devices, leaving more questions at this point, says Vass, than answers. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.